I've rediscovered bread. It's very, it's an exciting adventure over here in uh, in Holland. I still don't know if you're supposed to say Holland or the Netherlands or whatever, but bread's a big deal. Every grocery store has its own little bakery in it. I mean, and that's kind of true of American grocery stores. But like, uh, our, our landlords came back uh, for their holidays, and we, I was talking with them, and and one of the two or three things that the they said is like, oh, we're so excited to go get some bread. I guess the Macedonian bread, not good, but the bread here is good. Like we stopped by some place, uh, on the, on the way back from me getting in a prescription and we bought what I assume was like a bake that day piece of, uh, it was kind of like sourdough bread. And you just put some of that European spreadable butter, you know, they got mm-hmm. the butter that like doesn't come in a, um, what do you call a cylinder that is a rectangle? What's a three dimensional rectangle called? <laughs> three-dimensional rectangle a box is <laughs> yeah. it not <laughs> but you know it has that it has like that chainer that, that elongated uh you know it's not a cube right uh-huh. but it's it's a three-dimension a rectangle where, where you know the sides are bigger right anyways right. so in america you mostly get the butter in the three-dimensional rectangle but they're big into over here as i think most of europe you get the tub of butter that's long oh okay where you kind of yes. like pull it out and spread mm-hmm. it like Anyways, it. so you get yourself one of those that's got the high salt and, you know, you let it sit out on the counter so it's all uh, it's all soft. And then you just like take, uh, I don't know, five or six grams as I measure it and you just spread that on a piece of bread. Delicious. That's, that's And this is always – it's like fresh bread, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the big thing in Europe, right? It's, oh, yeah. I mean it's not that we don't have fresh bread. I don't feel like it's as It's just not part common. of our culture. Like we can, yeah, al- we can like always you... get fresh bread. It's just like it's not what we do. Yeah, it's like secondary. You like you get a loaf of bread here, right? Yes. And then maybe you occasionally get fresh bread. But yeah. no, fresh bread's always better. Fresh hot bread. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Getting hungry just talking about it. But you know, I, I went for years, like starting when I worked at Dell in twenty uh, ten. Like I, I I was I was eating that Tim Ferriss just beans and meat and vegetable diet, and then Saturday right. you could eat whatever you like. And then and then when I moved here for some reason, I decided I would stop doing that more or less, and uh, now I can eat bread. It's great. I love we bread. should review that. Give us a quick review of the the Tim Ferriss because it seems like I I mean I feel like you were having success with it. You feel like you were maintaining a weight you were happy with. Is that yeah yeah generally true? I think I think I just kind of what what did happen? I I sort of stalled out around like one. So you know I'm five foot nine, and uh, when I started, I think I w- I could go, I could go look at the charts. I started keeping a uh-huh. record of all this way back then, but I think I started at maybe like two hundred thirty pounds. And uh-huh. then I got down at one point I was at like 170. I was very skinny. Uh, uh-huh. and then, and then I ended up stabilizing more around 195 over the years. So, okay. but that I forget when that happened, but like, you know, it was, it was an okay diet to, to eat. I don't really know like why, why, uh, why it stalled out or whatever. I must have just been eating unhealthy, but. <laughs> The, uh, the, the lack of variation in it is, is really, uh, troublesome over the years. And, uh, I find, you know, the, I, it's interesting listening to your, your history because I feel like that's very common. Like, I feel like I've got something similar. It's like, you know, you definitely, there's this point of like really good weight loss. And then there's this point in your life where you're like, you kind of achieve like, I'm going to what you call it, like your adult, like low weight. Mm. But it's, it's very hard. You know, I mean, you kind of get there. <laughs> And then, but the work to stay there is just like, it's kind of just exhausting, right? You're just like, I just want a piece of pizza, you know? And mm. then there's this moment where you just, 
you like you have pizza pizza and then you kind of float back up you know what i mean it's sort of yeah, like, yeah hopefully yeah. it'll go away but it but it is it's maybe it's just like being content with like well you know like maintaining like your optimal lowest weight is just it is just a mentally taxing thing no matter what anyone says like you convert everything and you eat why and there's this moment though I, I just for me i uh I've, I've always felt like you know i just want some pizza yeah <laughs> and then yeah. it's like that's well, true that's i'm gonna true. have to deal with it with uh not being as uh as healthy as i want to be yeah yeah and i i think i think that yeah yeah no that's definitely the case and I, you know so i mean i've only been doing this since august and uh but now i just i just do the old like you know calorie count, counting thing with lose it which which is fine but it, it my my working and and i mean i'm not you're absolutely right at some point there's like no more uh emotional reward for being healthy and so the uh the 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 five minutes of joy of eating pizza overruns the uh the week-long feeling of joy that you're you're like healthy <laughs> and and <laughs> and not and not uglier than you need to be to be all body shamey or whatever i mean but isn't that really what people are after when they're losing weight i mean they want to be healthy sure but they just think they don't look good so they want to look better you know I'm sure that's terrible for me to say, but that's my reflections on it. Uh, so, but, but, uh, so far it's like, you know, it's, it's not so much that you can't have a piece of pizza. It's that you shouldn't have five pieces. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so like, I feel like if I can reset to that level, which at the moment I've done, then things are kind of cool. And then, you know, I can have like, uh, three pieces of bread today and that's fine. But then I'll be like, I'm just cognizant of like, how much stuff I'm eating, which, which I don't know. Well, you meant, as I say, we'll you mentioned see. last week, it does seem like, you know, the, <laughs> you graciously put it like you weren't maybe enthralled with European food, but you know, I have found everywhere. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure this will, someone will tell me this is wrong somewhere else, but the U S seems to have the biggest portions of food yeah. anywhere. So just That's by true. being somewhere else where there's like less portions, smaller portions rather, um, gotta be a huge help. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. It probably is helpful. Well, uh, you know, it seems like some people might be taking smaller portions of the official Oracle Java SE commercial version because because now they're going to do you know the details of all this? I was just reading up. Luckily, I found a Forrester report from uh, I think it was from Hammond and Reimer, everyone's favorite 80s TV show about uh, sleuthing through enterprise software pricing. And it seems like uh, I haven't followed the Java world at this granularity for a while. So one, you got, you got your old school Oracle. What you used to just, you used to get this thing from Sun for free. And then Oracle had that, I think. But you could always pay like some $5,000 a core production support. And I think in that support, I guess you could call them when things went wrong. And then you could also get patches and something. And then, uh, but now what is the pricing? I think starting in April, if I remembered, uh, that's sort I think it started this in January that if you get new stuff, you have to pay this. But then in April, like if you've got existing stuff, you have to pay it. It's $25 a month per server core and $250 a month for a Java client. If you're using, uh, what was that called? Java Web Start? That, that would be fine. I talked to someone recently who's still using, uh, Java Web Start and, uh, Java apps. Anyways, so it looks like if you want support, and support means it also means that twice a year they'll update the their their Java JRE is that what it's still called, and uh, then you'll get your your twice a year updates which you can apply. So uh, now now on the other hand, like 
you know, I wanted to go see what Forrester had to say because it's easy to read some random article on the internet and be like, Java is no longer free. But turns out, as as people like me who don't follow Java very closely, know, uh, you know, wouldn't know, there's like five or six other versions of Java that are based on or are the Open JDK, which is actually free. And then, in fact, kind of like Red Hat with uh, with CentOS, I think they call it, like. Oracle also has an open JDK version that is uh, sort of like said to be exactly the same as far as maybe not feature set, but as far as like stability and having patches applied and everything. So it seems like one, I'm, I'm kind of like spilling my whole thing here, but it seems like one, if you don't want to pay to run Java, lots of options. And two, if you wanted support for Java, then maybe you should pay for it. <laughs> well, I think that's the, I mean, this is uh, going all the way back to Sun, right? Like, I think if we go back to kind of go back to like Solaris and Linux, right? And, um, you know, Sun, of course, like just to quickly recount that history had kind of this checkered history with open source, right? It was for a while, Scott McNeely sort of, you know, kind of made fun of Linux, right? And was very bullish on Solaris and Spark hardware. And then there was this shift at Sun where it's like, no, no, everything's going open source, right? And then, Sun came out with a bunch of different licenses. I think one was like Cuddle, and there was Slayers mm. x86, and then, uh, then sort of at the end of Sun, it was uh, under the Jonathan Schwartz era, right? It was like open. Uh, there's this inside Sun. There's this famous like Redshift, Blueshift conversation. But anyway, it was like the net net of it was. Oh, yeah, like well, yeah, every- I, I think I think I've had you explain this to me like five times, and I still don't remember what was what was that metaphor about. Um, gosh, I have to go back and look at it, but it was uh, it was it was like basically to do with astronomy and space like the stars it was like the red shift versus mm-hmm. the blue shift and like kind of i think it was just a metaphor for like significant change like what kind of change are we undergoing oh yeah and, that's uh, right that's right and like red shift which is funny now looking back on it because red is horrible right so it's uh-huh. like uh at the time i believe it was the red shift meant and this could be wrong but it was something like you know it's a new it's a new era open source is here right and i think that was maybe most um, memorialized by Sun buying MySQL, right? So this mm. is all about this time. So, but I remember being at Sun and being like, it's just conferences and stuff at the time and not directly involved in any of this sort of just you know, working in like identity and access management. But, you know, the, the people that were kind of from like a very open source background were always like, Sun doesn't get it or Sun's going to change its mind or is Sun really committed to open source? So it's sort of like the bona fides, if you will. It was always called into question. Like, what is Sun really going to do here? Are they going to change the license? And um, and so it's interesting, like, I don't know how many years later, at least a decade, maybe more, that uh, that that's kind of come to fruition now, right? So like here it is, right? So two things have like played out. Like Oracle buys Sun, and then there's the Oracle Google lawsuit that's ongoing about mm. trademark infringement or copyright infringement um, of the Java APIs. And then there's this where Oracle has kind of come out, and I think this is essentially doing what I think everyone, if, many people feared at one time was like, oh, they're going to change the license and try to charge for it. Yeah. So, um, but I, I don't know. I mean, it feels like the headline is Oracle charges for Java, but when you dig into it, it's certainly anyone that's starting something today, I think those people have plenty of options. Like if you're starting a project today and you want to use Java, you can probably pick your JRE and JDK such that, you know, you're you're never going to have to worry about this. Um, So this seems squarely kind of targeted at older legacy legacy applications that 
while I'm sure they could move to other run times, it would take them a lot of time and effort, right? So why don't we, you know, it's, it's sort of the conversation, this is the cost benefits analysis of we could do all this work or we could pay $5,000 per server and plus we could maybe get some kind of discount with Oracle and maybe we can roll this into our Oracle ELA. You know, why don't we just do that? Like that kind of feels like what's happening here to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and it, uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically, I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of like technical ways this statement is wrong, but like this is basically the Red Hat business model, <laughs> right? Like there's there's something you could get free and maintain maintain and patch and upgrade on your own and not have like, you know, first level support for or whatever, or you can pay for it. Right. And, and so like, I, I mean, you know, no one, no one likes to be say nice things about Oracle, but like, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Now there is the, I think, I think the, the crisis thing is, as you were pointing out, it was like, Oh, I, I didn't have to pay for this before. And so it's really hard for me to excrecate uh, like it's hard for me to pull out and replace the Java that stuff I have. So now I'm being forced to bring on a cost I hadn't planned for or anticipated. And like, we can all agree that costs suck, right? In any walk of mm. life, if you have to pay for something, uh, that's considered worse than not having to pay for it. <laughs> uh, and, and then I, you know, that is like, unfortunate. well, Speaking of having to pay for things, unfortunately, the Forrester report is behind their, uh, their paywall. <laughs> their paywall. Uh, yeah. But you know, Hammond and Reimer, those, uh, those fancy shiny pistols and shoes and loafers and, uh, Corvettes they drive around as they're fighting crime, that those, those aren't free. They got to be paid for. But anyways, uh, much of what they spend their time on, uh, is like strategies for dealing with this if you don't want to just pay for it. Right. So if you have a bunch of, uh, Java apps on the server side and, uh, you want to continue having that support, then they're like, here's, here's a couple strategies we would, we would, uh, offer you to, uh, to deal with that. And, and I think the three were basically <laughs> the last one's the best. The three, the first was basically, uh, well, do us. And, and this is an order of kind of rationality, I guess, like do a systematic triage of like all the Java that you're running. And kind of plan out which ones you want to pay for and which ones you want to replatform and just like figure it out, right? Do, do what, do what, in other words, do some enterprise architecture for fuck's sake for once in your life. Uh, and, and so do that kind of thing. Or this, the second one was like, I don't know, just pay for it all. So, so that, that's everyone's favorite option. But the third is, uh, see how long you can go without paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> which which but is do you all, think which is also fine. I, uh i you know the actual end state here doesn't seem that awful to me but i wonder if you know if it's just one of these kind of like status quo bias kind of things where yeah. where the the thing that makes this hard for people is that hey this it was free you know and i guess this is just back to and i think we're seeing this play out a lot of different ways and so maybe we were to step back and just kind of give this general summary it's like you know, these open source projects start, the fact that they're freely available and can be used without any cost clearly is one reason that spurs adoption, right? Mm. So, and I think as like a, a consumer of any of this technology, if you're using it in your enterprise, that's that's always the thing in the back of your mind is like, okay, I am adopting it. I'm, I believe your current terms, but I'm a little concerned 
uh, that potentially, like this is not necessarily the software developer. Maybe it's the, the software architect, the manager, the CFO. They're always just a little concerned, like, like if we get a little too tied to this and, and you just may change your mind, like what are we going to do, right? And so this yeah. is the idea of like, well, and someone would say, well, it's all, uh, this is all, we can just fork it or we can just, um, you know, we have this this version we can support ourselves. But I'll, everyone realizes that in itself comes with its own set of problems. You know, rarely do you want to be the only one using the version of something, right? Yeah. Uh, especially your own version. So so I think as a broader industry here, right, because I think we talked about this a couple times in different ways, is like we are seeing people kind of do what people worry about. Like they use open source to gain adoption. And then when there's enough adoption and there's enough lock-in, if you will, right, where switching costs are high enough, that people are changing the licenses. And, and and I don't know, you know, as you were recounting Red Hat, I honestly do not remember, but I feel like now, maybe just because it's been so much time, that Red Hat always came into it. There was always a free version and a paid version, right? There was always this distinction um, between the two, but like Fedora mm-hmm. and, you know, RHEL. And, and I don't know if that's true. I mean, because it's like going back in time, maybe there was at one point just one version, but it feels like that that part make, makes it easier. Like they've always been clear, right? Here's the free version, here's the paid version, right? And you've always had this option, um, you know. And it, again, I don't know if it's an important new, it's a, a very nuanced thing, but like just the fact that they've kind of always allowed you to opt in versus yeah. sort of like, you know, forcing to opt out seems to be a really important difference here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I mean, I'm sure there's some Linux head out there that knows the, knows the precise history of stuff. Cause I seem to remember back when I was at Red Monk, like Fedora was a new thing that came out or I don't know, maybe that's when I was just re- introduced to the concept and I was like, that's kind of a ridiculous name for something, but totally on brand. Uh, you know, and, and this is before the, uh, the fedora hipster thing, right? Like I think back then it was only like nerds with long chains that would wear fedoras. It wasn't kind of like, you remember, this is maybe like, what year is this? This must've been like five years ago when like wearing hats was suddenly like a thing with hipsters. Like there's that whole store down on South Congress that you could go to and buy like a $300 hat that was like a old grandpa hat or something. You remember that? Is that still a thing? Yeah, people wearing hats. I, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I always, I don't want to ever claim I know what's going on in hipster culture, but like, I, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I think yeah. you. There's a point where like hats became in vogue. They're definitely, uh, and you see them as like clearly they're a way to make a a statement, right? Separating yourself uh, from the and general it, crowd, but also uh, aligning yourself with the uh, the hipster I, crowd. I think, sure. I think as always, at least in U.S. culture. Look how look how cosmopolitan I'm being now, qualifying things as U.S. versus the rest of the world. Like, I know what the fuck is going on. But, like, I think the apex of any fashion trend is when you can buy it at Target. And and I remember <laughs> Target start having the, started having those hats. And uh, there you go. Anyway, it's over. That was it. That yeah. was the end of that trend. Ba- back then, in the 2000s, fedora meant something different than it means nowadays. It meant, it meant like, you know, peach fuzz mustache nerd guy, uh, essentially. That one, that one guy who wears a fedora. Uh, and man, if you found like a female who wore a fedora, that was like finding, you know, an, an animal previously thought, thought extinct. That was, that was just way out there. Uh, you know, I'm not judging anyone. I don't want to tell people how to live their life. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, that, that se- it seems like, I think, I think that your, your history of Red Hat is correct. If, if not technically correct, like that's the effect that happened, right? There was always this free version you could go to. And again, that's why I was going back to like, so it seems like even from Oracle, you have this, this free version you can use or you can pay for it. And I guess 
even in, in the case of both, in the case of supported Linux, whether it's from SUSE, Canonical, I don't know if IBM sells Linux, SUSE, Canonical, and Red Hat, uh, or in the case of like Java here, where you've got an open source, uh, an open source thing that's free or uh, a commercial thing. And in the case of almost every single open source company we talk to, it's sort of like there's this one thing. There's at least one thing. Well, well, two to rehash our fa- my favorite conversation. Apparently, uh, you know, you might have additional features you pay for, so you got that. But then there's this one other interesting thing that basically I think you're this fear you're selling against, and that fear is I can't just easily swap in the free thing in place of the pay thing. Like even though the whole world tells me it's technically the same thing and compatible. That's not actually true. So I'm going to have to do a bunch of tests and go th- spend a lot of time and probably at least six months, unless I'm like buck wild crazy. Uh, I'm going to have to spend like six months doing regression testing and testing things and something's going to go wrong and I'm going to have to rewrite it. So it's going to be a big hassle and I'm going to have downtime. And none of this was planned out in my annual planning last year. And like, Somehow, that's like an interesting phenomena of like, according to everything I was taught as a programmer, when all this open source stuff says it's compatible, you're supposed to be able to just change it around and it's cool. But it's almost like, and I'm blowing this up a little bit more than it it deserves to be, but it's like, that's sort of like a lie the open source world and its users tell itself that like, none of this is actually compatible so good luck. I, you know, I, I'm phrasing it wrong, but there is sort of like, that's not how it's supposed to work, right? Like if, if I were to bounce between, and I, I'm sure I'll get this wrong and and I'm only, I don't mean to pick on Red Hat because in this instance, at least, because they're like a pivotal competitor, but it's the example I know. I guess I could use Canonical, but I don't know the details of it too much. In theory, Red Hat would say, you can get Fedora for free or you can get RHEL and they're compatible. And the reason you pay for RHEL is we've got third level support and we host Spaceship or Spacewalk or whatever. So there's like an extra service that will allow you to download patches instead of running your own. Uh, I don't even know what they call that. In in the Docker world, it would be a um, a registry, right? Like there's this there's this thing online that you can get the good software from that you you put into your your uh, your Linux that makes it work better. And you have to pay for access to that. I don't even know if you can get that for free or not. So I'm kind of just making this up. But like we got the commercial version and the free version and they're both the same, but then the buyers don't think they're the same. They can't just swap them. So I don't know. I think I'm probably a third right on all that, but it's a weird phenomena that I think brings about this kind of situation that like, sure, if I bought the commercial version of Oracle, maybe there's stuff that's not open source that I want to use which is fine. Then it gets back to my principle of like, well, maybe you should pay for it. What are you complaining about? Right? Like I don't get those uh, cheap hats at target for free. Like I got to pay for them. There's nothing out of targets. Good heart that makes them do it for free. Or, uh, you know, so you got all that special stuff or it's just like these things, you're just paranoid and they're actually compatible. So you can just swap between them at will or they're not actually compatible. And then there's that letdown. Yeah, well, I think, you know, everyone 
in in almost every walk of life, right? There's always been this some belief that like, you know, you can just, you know, go back to like any type of OEM stuff. There's like there's an OEM part and there's an aftermarket part, right? Mm. For any for almost anything. Or like generic it, prescription drugs. That's yeah, another. Yeah, I mean, yeah. any of it is the same, right? And it's always like when you read something, it's always like, yep, this this thing completely replaces things and it's identical, but whether it's a prescription drug, a car part, or in this case, a, a software <laughs> a platform, like we all know, like when you go to do the replacement, you know something is different. Like the bolt nut is slightly different in the car part, right? There's there's a little bit of uh, the doctor will say there's another side effect to the generic, right? Or you know you need to watch out for. It. And then of course in software, it's like you get into these things, and uh, it's it's always something that's usually like can only reveal itself like when you're like midway through the transition. Oh. It turns out this doesn't work on uh, my specific operating system running my specific hardware in this software patch, you mm. know. And um, and I think that's I think it, you know, even things that are a hundred percent swappable, you know, like I it, it be, until you do it, it's not proven. And I think that's where you know, kind of fear, uncertainty, and doubt come in, right? Where it's just like if you're staring at this and you're running a business and you're like, hmm. Do I try to replatform everything? Do I just swap it all out? Is engineering going to come back and say, "Yep, that we'll just do that in an hour," right? Or is it like, "Hmm, we got to test all that." I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be a while. So, um, so I don't know. I, I think you're right. Maybe it is a lie that we just like swapping things in and out is always harder than we think than you think it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, my, also on my list of favorite topics is like this is further evidence that like lock in as a concept is bullshit. <laughs> like it's just like a constant stream of just fud driven bullshit you know i submitted a talk to oscon this is maybe uh whenever whenever the big hubbub about like uh is it uh redis it's not redis right redis did i ever tell you i was once introducing them as a sponsor at an event and i said redis and it was just like yet another yet another uh cote is it malapropism what mispronunciation and anyways it's funny so when all that controversy was out about changing that around i submitted this talk and i think i think i, I should look this up i titled it uh, lock-in is a lie hopefully they'll accept it and then i can have a much more organized rant about how all these concerns are just like just basically like uh i don't want to pay a lot for that muffler <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just, it's just like, I, I don't want to pay a lot for software. So I'm going to come up with all these derivative terms and bullshit around it. It's just like, it's just like when I studied, uh, basically philosophy between, it doesn't quite start with, with the, the birth of Christ because it takes a couple centuries for that to become mainstream. But let's say around three or 400 BC. So all Western philosophy between, we'll just go with 400 because really, who the fuck knows what was going on in 300 BC? I mean, AD. It's just all guesswork. Uh, anyways, you got like from about 400 to let's say maybe 1925. No, no, it would be right after World War One. That's when everyone was kind of like, fuck this God guy. So World War One like wrapped up in 1916. I don't know. So basically, between uh, 400 AD and probably the publication of The Sun Also Rises, uh, all philosophy was basically like, see, you got this Bible thing, which is contradictory. And, um, and, I, and I don't mean this part to be judgmental. It's based on faith instead of rationality. And so a lot of philosophy spent its time trying to explain rationality, trying to explain the Bible with, by like uh, retrofitting rationality onto it. And you get these really fantastic, like if you read Descartes, 
right? So Descartes is great. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like how a science fiction movie, the last fourth of it always has to be like, oh, we need a plot. And that plot's got to wrap up. And then it just ruins the movie. And then so like Descartes stuff and Barclay and all these other people and even Kant and everyone, like the last bit, it's like they've written this fantastic like discourse on reasoning and how we can know truth and all the and morals. And then at the end, they're like, oh, right. I have to somehow prove that God still exists despite everything I just wrote. And man, the acrobatics <laughs> they go through are insane. Uh, and so like, you know, I think a lot of this lock in stuff and other discussion is similar. It's just like, fuck, I don't want to pay a lot of money for software. And then we come up with all this shit to, uh, kind of hide that fact, which is fine. Like my whole point is like, dude, I don't want to pay money for a lot of stuff either. So let's talk about that. <laughs> right. Like, like if you want to negotiate that you want to pay less money, that's why we have an enterprise sales force. And as you and I discussed last week, that's why the enterprise sales process is fucked. Right. Like, <laughs> Let's just let's uh, go get a steak. Right. Come let's, back let's tomorrow in, morning. Talk about work price. Work at a price. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So listen, uh, I didn't mean to insult any Christians or anything. Uh, that's just that's just my my uh, my read of, <laughs> your, of your how your long philosophy. analogy. That was quite the analogy. Good day. Yeah. You've you've come up with a lot. That one I may go on the wall. That may go up there on the wall as one of the <laughs> one of the more unusual ones. Huh. I'm telling you, just go read the Western canon of philosophy, and you'll see this pattern over and over again. It's, you can, like, after a while, you can even see it coming, and you're like, all right, I'm done with this book. Don't need to read further. I know what's going to happen. I, I, I've, I've seen this movie many times before. Uh, anyhow, let's say, let's say that you have, you're operating a big uh, cluster of things. You got your JREs coming and going, you know, because you're all cloud native. You've got a huge assortment of things. You still got to monitor your gigantic. Not only are you running a distributed application, you're running a, distri a distributed distributed application. You're running clusters of clusters. So much going on. Now, how, you know, you can't just uh, not pay attention to that. How might you keep track of what's going on there, Brandon? Well, I'm glad you asked, Cote, because our, our friends at SolarWinds have some solutions. And this week's episode is sponsored by SolarWinds, and they want you to know about their tools designed for DevOps, which include Pingdom, AppOptics, PaperTrail, and Logly. Today's recognized pillars of observability combine metrics, traces, and logs to enable DevOps teams to monitor systems and application performance. But these capabilities provide only limited insights into application performance because they ignore the user's experience, a critical measure of application performance. Understanding if a system is slow or unavailable from an end user's perspective is crucial in today's digital world, even if, it, even if the metrics are good and there are no alerts. Altogether, the combined functionality of Pingdom, AppOptics, PaperTrail, and Logly brings together real user monitoring, synthetic user monitoring, web and application performance metrics, distributed tracing, event aggregation, and log management to help proactively identify bottlenecks and accelerate troubleshooting. By bringing user experience, metrics, traces, and logs together with an easy-to-use, complementary toolkit, DevOps team gain unmatched visibility into their cloud environment so they can seamlessly follow an alert or issue from one product into another to resolve issues quickly and get back to focusing on the more productive elements of their jobs. Today, over 275,000 customers Worldwide, and I'm going to say 99% of the Fortune 500 trust and rely on SolarWinds for their monitoring software. And of course, to learn more or to try SolarWinds comp, um, tools, please visit solarwinds.com slash DevOps. And there they can sign up for any one of those tools, give them a try, 
you won't have to talk to anybody. You'll get to evaluate the product. And then if you like it and it's providing value, you can obviously buy it. So we really appreciate SolarWinds. And as always, when you visit them, make sure to tell them your friends at Software Defined Talk sent you. You won't have to talk to anyone. Man, it's, it's software for millennials. Like that. <laughs> that's right that's absolutely right well you know i was i was remembering uh like like i think i think as as we were trying to struggle to remember the uh the redshift blue shift i think that would be a good opening uh and i don't know i don't like prefaces and forwards and introductions so much which is not entirely accurate but that would be a good opening chapter from my uh, never to be actually done son what the fuck book which would be like they had this analogy about redshift and blue shift and I talked to these five people, and they each gave contradictory, confused explanations of what that was. And that itself, this metaphor they used was a metaphor for the company. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not going to be, that's, I think it was Greg Papadopoulos. Yeah, yeah, not, he's the one who was he, always uh, saying it. And he was the one that was always talking about it. And it's like, I mean, he's super smart. I mean, it, it's one of these things, though, it's like, I don't know, I feel bad, I don't know. I'll have to go read it and like learn again, because now I feel, now I'm worried. Maybe I have it wrong. Maybe it was the blue shift. And I'll be like, see, Brandon, that's the problem. You weren't paying attention. Of it. But I tried. I will say I was there in the meetings. I remember seeing the slides. Like there's the stars yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything. No, no. And, I just and don't it, remember if red or blue was important. And 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 it, it it's it's the criticism isn't so much about the concept itself. It's like how the concept is wielded to make money, right? Like that's where things break down all the time. It's like it's uh it's being overly smart in a commercial context, which causes commercial damage, right? And, and you know, we all do that. It's all fine. But it is, I don't know. It's just also, like, I always like to poke fun at, like, physicists and astro astronomers and stuff. Because it just, like, I find it all very confusing. So if I fear something, I make fun of it. <laughs> make fun of it. There yeah, you go. I, I'm, I'm willing to admit that I'm petty and a little person like that, uh, which is fine. I mean, compared... To the billions and billions of stars out there in the scope of the galaxy, I am a small person. And the time I have here is so short. So I like to take full advantage of it by poking fun at people instead of being <laughs> virtuous. I mean, how much time do I have around to, uh, you know, be wicked and, and guileful and everything? I don't want to waste it. <laughs> Man, that makes me sound like such an asshat. But what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, you know, I remember back to, you know... Just one one last anecdote to prove that I'm not trying to be too much of a dick about the big JC and people who like him. I was I was in a uh, a deposition once, and uh, afterwards the 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 opposing person asked me like, uh, uh, you know, I'd had philosophy and who my favorite philosopher was, and I said, oh, Nietzsche was my favorite philosopher, and then he was like, oh, so this all means nothing, and and it, and then of course my lawyer was like, oh, that's not admissible, and it was pretty funny. But it's just like, yeah, I mean, this all means nothing. So why don't you give me all the money? <laughs> like just just on on a plane of belief where there basically is no source of meaning. It's, it's I can't I can't begrudge people for thinking something better. That's great for them. It uh, sounds good. Well, I don't know. Kote, I don't know if this is ever going to be possible, but uh, you being deposed seems like excellent podcast material. So I don't know. If there, I mean, there's probably like numerous reasons this uh -huh. will never happen, but uh, we can never throw that in the back catalogs of software defined interviews. Right. I, 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 for one, would be fascinated to hear how yeah. <laughs> the, I, the deposition went. I, it was, you know, it was recorded, 
and I bet I bet someone's paying like a huge. Some law firm is probably paying like at least three hundred thousand dollars a year in software licensing to preserve that day's recordings. Right? I'm just saying right now, no, it's in Amazon Glacier somewhere. It's probably <laughs> it's it's like because it, it's probably been a few That's years. Right. It's, it's been uh, it's on a tape somewhere. Yeah. And, you it's, know, it's on it just, it's in the Amazon snow globe somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> oh man that was a weird experience so stupid uh anyways uh oh you know so i've been reading there's this new book that came out uh about uh i don't even remember surveillance capitalism and this is yeah. one one it's got some interesting stuff in it and by in it i mean the reviews of it say it does because i haven't read the book but two you know since we're uh always talking about uh business books and the structure of books like this is a good example uh, the, the reviews of this book of why, like, I, I don't like reading book reviews, which is to say, like, I just, I think I reread, like, the Nicholas Carr one. You remember him? IT doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that was fun. Uh, you know, I think that was much misunderstood. Uh, maybe not, though, actually, because he was talking about, like, just plugging in stuff and using it as a utility. Who knows? I should go reread that book and see what it's see what like, it's where like. Where is he today? What is he still doing speeches based on that, or is that like yeah, he's like a, out of vogue? isn't he like, like an MIT or Harvard professor or something? He probably gives classes and, anyways, his latest work appears to be a review he wrote about this book, and uh, yeah, it's sort of like I don't know if I need to read this book now, but I feel like it's hard for me to like think about it if I don't read it. And all the reviews, including this one, are like, this is a really long book that should have been just 200 pages instead of 436. But I think, I think the, uh, the idea that seems to be in it is it's a good, it's a good phrasing of an old, uh, uh, Steve Gilmore idea. Did you ever, did you ever hear about the gesture economy he went on and on about way back when? You remember yeah, him? Yeah. Steve Gilmore? Yeah, the attention economy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And so his notion in, I'll have to, I almost went to go look this up. And I think it, it might have been attention or whatever, but at some point he was calling it gestures. And he was like, so basically people are always making, and it's, it's a good, it's a good, uh, metaphor. People are always making these. It took me a long time to figure it out. Maybe if I spent this amount of time on blue, red, green stuff shifting, I would understand it better. Uh, but it was basically like every single move you make online, everything you do is like a gesture, right? And those gestures have, I'm kind of rewording it a little bit. They have semantic value and they have some value of like why you did that, what your intentions were. And they can also like indicate um, what your thinking is and stuff about you, right? And so the simplest gesture that we're all familiar with is is the like. And however that takes its form, you know, as, as a thumbs up or a star or whatever. And then I guess there's the negative version that you have, like you have a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So that's a simple gesture, right? It indicates you like something. And then, you know, retweeting something is another gesture. And it, basically anything you do, it's an interesting sort of like, it's probably some philosophic theory about this kind of thing. But any sort of action you take uh, is indicative of something about you, some way you think and some belief you have. And then I guess, I guess as, as, uh, I forget what her name is, but as, as this book goes on, uh, the, the theory that she evolves is, uh, essentially, so you take all those gestures. And I'm pretty sure if I looked in the index, there would be no Steve Gilmore in there, which, which is fine. Uh, but like, like basically you, you take those gestures. And then what you can do is you can predict what people will want to buy and you can predict their other behavior, like their voting and stuff like that. And then I guess the next thing that, that she gets from, which, you know, was, was alluded to by, uh, uh, the attention account. What was it? The attention merchants. I, did he ever spell out exactly that you can start manipulating these things and that all these evil 
people will start manipulating all that data. I forget that. Yeah, I think he just kind of puts that in a section of like propaganda. Like oh, when people okay. start yeah, to yeah, use yeah. That's right. use these things for political motives. Yeah, yeah. Like 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 the British can recruit a bunch of soldiers for the war the, the war that uh, removed belief in God or World War One. <laughs> the posters of propaganda, and then I think he even talks about the Nazis at some point, right? I think that's right. It. I think he also talks about the U.S. too. Like uh, yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. You know, Uncle Sam and like all the different things that have been created. Yep, yeah, and and you know how bread you should eat like a loaf of bread a day because it's at the bottom of the pyramid. I don't know if he mentions that, but sure. <laughs> Which, you know, let's experiment with that. Loaf of bread a day? Man, that sounds so good. Uh, I'm in. <laughs> fresh bread. So anyways, the idea is then you have all those behaviors, and then you basically what you see with Facebook and Google at all, as they say in academia, is uh, you basically just have a marketplace for selling those behaviors and then manipulating the behaviors. And this is the part that I need to read the book because I don't really understand how that hooks up to, like, capitalism in like a a evolutionary way because i think part of the um the conceit and i mean that in the good version of the word that the conceit of the book as far as i can tell from their views is like and this is like a new stage of capitalism where we have or new type where we have surveillance capitalism where where like my feeling would be like well it's not like Carl Rove doing direct mail was a new phase of capitalism. He just like was able to use technology to accelerate and make more efficient something that has been done ever since Homer like figured out the right way to word something to tell stories, right? Going back to, uh, I don't know, was that in Tim Wu's book or that other book, The Information? You like how I'm showing off how, wide re- how widely read I am? But it's just, uh, I, which is not to be dismissive. I, I think, I think what's interesting about, again, I should read the book, but all the reviews on it is, is like, I guess, I guess it does make explicit that basically like these big organizations, uh, have a new type of, uh, I'm, I'm being contradictory here, but have a much different, better type of product, which is basically just advertising. And right. I don't know, when, whenever this kind of commentary comes up, like I always feel like it's kind of like my lock-in screed. Like I feel like people just really don't want to use the word advertising or propaganda, which is kind of all it is. It's just like, yeah, it's just better advertising. So, which is in itself worrying, but we don't need to right. like come but up think- with a bunch of fancy dressing for it. Yeah, and I think maybe the open question, right, is is just um, like what happens when advertising is just becomes so good, right? And that's exactly. I guess, and I think every every generation or every new technology, you know, you just wonder, like, you know, if there's sort of like this optimal level of advertising, right? Let's say it's a hundred, and you're getting closer and closer. Like maybe you never get to a hundred. Maybe you never get to something that can literally predict the next thing you want all the time. But but it's really good at predicting like you know a lot. So so you have that happening, and then you have I think you know kind of in the fifties, right? Kind of this whole you know uh, economic research of uh, around um, you know kind of like behavioral economics, right? So mm. like that starts in the fifties where people are like, hey, it turns out this idea that assuming human beings are rational all the time isn't really correct. And then you have like, now we're into probably 60 years of research, right? Where it's getting pretty good, much better at explaining like, why do we make certain decisions? Right? So you take that kind of knowledge and then you combine it with, with really sophisticated advertising products that are watching what you're doing. Right. And so you kind of combine these two and it's like now, uh, and I think when they call it surveillance capitalism, I think that's really to me like the underlying pillars. It's like, we now have a much better understanding about, 
the decisions that people make and what, what motivates them, even to the point of like, we don't consciously understand it, but if you kind of study it you, and read about it, you understand it. And then we have these systems that are incredibly good at collecting all this data such that like, even we don't, you know, it's almost, they know more about us than we know about ourselves. Right. So, so if you think of like, go back to like maybe 1960s where it was just like, Hey, build a new car, paint it a certain color, maybe you do some surveys, but you know, there's still like a lot of unknowns about what's happening. But now you go to the other side of it. It's like, not only is the car being built, but what features are in a car are based on like our own human behavior that that's going to dictate what we want to buy. And then it's even going to know when I want to buy a car and it's going to start showing me cars and car loan, you know, even yeah. though I'm not even sure I've done it. And, and so you get to this point where it's like, is the system so sophisticated and so good that it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, we're no longer, you know, the tag, uh, the tail wagging the dog. Like we don't even know what's happening to us. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and do we like that environment? So I think that's really the underlying theme of that article or that book. Yeah. Well, you know, we started a new, uh, book and film club in the Slack channel. And by we, I mean, uh, it was, it was, uh, Jordy did that. Right. If I remember. <laughs> and, uh, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Cause I don't know Spanish properly, but, uh, uh, like I should read that book. I just bought it the Kindle version and being a new book, it was not one of those $10 Kindle books. It was $20. So I hope oh. everyone appreciates the sacrifices I'm making and I'll slog through it and figure out what, uh, maybe it won't be a slog. Maybe it'll be delightful. Uh, but I'll, I'll see what the deal is. But yeah, it, it does seem like there, uh, you know, I, it seems like in our, in our lifetime, Brandon, the, I think the big, uh, the big idea, one of the bigger ideas that's evolved is basically there is no rational agent in economics we're all completely irrational. And so all this theory and even moralizing about how people would make rational choices is all bullshit. Like there's just like, you can never depend on people being rational to do anything. So if that's the basis for some sort of uh, system or moralizing, it's incredibly, uh, to use another big idea, it's incredibly fragile, which uh, I do. And I think, you know, like there's a great example of it this week. And um, to me, at least maybe just speaks to me personally. It's like, you know, Slack, as we've talked about before, they officially, filed to go public, right? And they're doing really well. And and um, so two like major thoughts I take away from this. Like one, you know, messaging products are the true viral products that seem to like just come out of nowhere, right? And, but when they hit, they become so valuable, right? Because like understanding, like communicating with people is maybe like the most important thing that, you know, we want to do as a society, like communicate with others. But when you look back on this, because it was interesting when I was reading the Slack stuff, they were going through some of the competitors, right? And it was like Microsoft Teams, Google Hangouts and chat, and then um, WebEx has their products. And it's like, when you really look at all of them, because I think I've touched them all at one point in my life for whatever reason, is like, they are pretty much the same. You know, they're not that huge a difference. Uh, but but Slackbots, like, Brandon, Slackbots. I know, but it's just, I wish I know it's funny to say, but I, th I think this just gets into, but like, there's going to be all these articles written about like, you know, it's kind of just, I guess, a, a version of the halo effect I'm, I always like to talk about. But it's just like there are going to be all these retrospective articles writing, you know, writing about like why Slack was successful. And like and I like Slack. We use it. It's a great product. You should join our Slack channel, too. And, uh, you know, but I always come back to like the real like to me, it comes back to this human behavior thing. It's like it's just very hard to predict. Like, why is Slack going to be worth 10 billion in Google Hangouts and chat? is being deprecated, right? You know, it's like, I think that's a <laughs> yeah. very difficult, like you is very difficult to understand. And I know people would come up with things, but I think this is like back to your human behavior thing. It's like, I, I come back to like, it's very hard to understand human beings and like truly what makes something take off 
and what makes something lackluster is it still remains a mystery today, even though like we see it happen all the time. Mm. Maybe that maybe well, th- my reading will unveil that 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 maybe is at the crux of the surveillance capitalism is that if if uh, if organizations can actually uh, what's the word deterministically figure out what people are doing, what irrational people are doing, you've got a gold you've got a whole new way of living. Right. Like previously, right. we thought you could be deterministic based on uh, the assumption that people were rational, that they would uh, seek their own interest, basically. Uh, but that ter- that turns out not to be true. So now if you basically just machine learn the fuck out of it, you can be you can go back to actual dependency and determinism, which means uh, you can remove a tremendous amount of waste from the system to get your bottom line improvements. And then also you can uh, do your top line growth by coming up with new products and services that uh, people would actually buy in an efficient way. Because, I mean, after all, this is all about capitalism, right? So it has to be due with uh, higher profits, as, as, as I understand how that works. <laughs> so I've been told. So uh, – as mentioned several times, the, the spring one tour continues to go on. That's the main thing I'll be at. I'll actually be at a couple of other things, but there's not really time to go over those, but it'll be in all sorts of cities. I'm going to be in St. Louis next week. That'll be kind of like the last U.S. thing I'll be to for a while. And then they'll be in London, Amsterdam, Paris and Istanbul and Johannesburg and Cape Town, all sorts of places, but, uh, and many places in the U.S. that I'm not going to, but you should go over to springonetour.io. And uh, we've got some codes in the show notes to get some money off. I think it ends up being like 100 or $150. It's not that big of a deal uh, to pay for it. You know, on a podcast, we were talking about paying for things that are valuable. Um, but if you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 165, you can see a listing of all of them and other events. And we still have uh, some T-shirts left if you want large and extra large. I saw a fine stack of them. You just have to email stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com if you've written a uh, an iTunes review and uh, send us a link to that and uh, we'll send that to you. That's our program, right, Brandon? Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, because we're, we're down to the end here, I was, I was going to give everyone another uh, way to get a T-shirt. So if you're listening in Overcast today and, I, and if the statistics are to believe about a third, maybe almost uh, 35, 40% of you are, here's what you can do. Right now, go uh, open up this episode that you're looking at and just click the star. There's like a little star icon right next to it. Uh, uh, click that star icon. Just tell me you did that. Tell me you uh, actually did that and rated, uh, gave our, uh, our episode here a little star and to send me your postal address for uh, anyone that lives in the U.S. And if you want a large or extra large gray or black T-shirt, I will send it to you because mm. uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see if we can like, improve our overcast r- rankings this week. That's right. That's right. Using this, that, there's an irrational deal for you. We're giving you a T-shirt just to click a star. So enjoy. <laughs> That's right. We we are now part of <laughs> we are we are now part of surveillance. Of, if only we had some surveillance abilities. That's uh, right. But, That's right. And and uh, you can also get stickers if you email that address and uh, all sorts of other things. Just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com/slash/165 and there's also some other news items and you can see how to join our uh, our Slack channel. So Brandon. What do you recommend this week? Uh, short and sweet this week, uh, the Amazon Smart Plug. Uh, so this is just the – we have a bunch of Alexas in the house, and we uh, they were on sale, so I bought one. And works as advertised. Just plug it in, you know, go to your Alexa app, you know, just add it, give it a, a name. And then uh, in my house, I put it in my son's room. So it's uh, ours is uh, Alexa, turn off and on the light. And you know what? Both me and my son, 
we thought it was awesome. We thought it was pretty cool. So uh, some very simple home automation that worked. Just, I mean, we talk about like you always wonder when you buy this stuff, is it going to really work? Is it going to be easy? In this case, I had an Alexa. I plugged it in. It worked immediately. I appreciate that. So if you are looking for some reason to uh, – if you're looking for a modern-day clapper, here it is, guys. Mm. Amazon Smart the Amazon Smart Plug. Check it out. And I think it's on sale for a couple more days. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I always wonder why those things are so expensive. I mean, and by so expensive, I mean like not $5. <laughs> Speaking of pricing, like it, it having having a Wi-Fi thing in there must cost a lot to license that. Because if you never notice that the cheap ones don't have Wi-Fi, they have like an RF remote thing, which is just like dumb, right? Because you're going to lose the remote and then you got to find the remote. It's just, it's weird that they're, I guess... I wonder who sells those things. Those little boards must be the most expensive part of it. And then it jacks up the, the price way up. Uh, well, I've already recommended buttered bread. So I would like to, <laughs> to reinforce that recommendation. Just just go get yourself some fresh bread and some uh, salted butter. Let the salted butter cool. I mean, is it cool? Let it warm up and then use that. But also, while I was in the U.S., I bought a... Uh, I'm, I'm grabbing it right now as if I'm looking at a video. I bought a one of the new MacBook Airs. I got the uh, I got the 256 gigs of storage. I think not the 1.5 terabytes, or I, I don't know how much storage I got. I got the mid tier one, and I haven't actually used this on the road yet. That's my dream, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's a good laptop. Is this to replace? Is this like a work thing, or is this like a personal one to? to yeah, replace yeah. Well, I, like, you know, what's your strategy? Work will only buy me one laptop, so uh-huh. I. Uh, uh, I, I have a big, a bigger laptop, the MacBook pro, you know, to help out with the podcasting and everything. And so right. I bought this one with the, uh, with all that sweet software defined talk ad money. Uh, I used it to buy this So listeners and advertisers. This is the, the bounty of your attention and your gestures, which has been surveilled apparently. Uh, but yeah, I bought this. It's my own laptop. I haven't bought my own laptop in a long time. Um, but I think it's very lightweight, seems to work well. Uh, and, and it only, it only, t- you know, with my fast internet, it only took about four days for all my Dropbox <laughs> stuff to download. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to take it on the first business trip. Just all right. That. Well, I want a full see review. I recently got a, uh, I got an older, um, iPad Pro with a keyboard and I've been dreaming like, well, maybe this could just be the thing I travel mm. with. Um, but I'm afraid to do it. I'm always like, hmm. Yeah. I may need my computer, right? So uh, I don't know. Maybe is it is the two laptop or is the I, I don't know. So I want your full review when you get back. Tell yeah. me if you Here, my, my, that. I, I agree with you. My working theory on all that is like there are two primary use cases. Well, there's three use cases I know off the top of my head that make a iPad not work for me. One, you gotta you gotta record and edit podcasts, right? So I don't. Uh-huh. I think you could do that on an iPad, but man, that seems really dicey. It'd be really weird. Uh, and then, man, you would be like moving that file between all these apps in a weird way. Uh, and then two, uh, you got to make like your, your PowerPoint presentations. And I think I could set myself up on an iPad to be able to do that, but that would be a lot of prep work. Like you'd need to do mm-hmm. what they call it, mise en place. Like you'd have to, you'd have to really, like we were talking about blenders last week, right? It would have to be like the blender demo where you've already cut up all the stuff and you're just assembling it, which is not really doing PowerPoint. <laughs> right. And then three, uh, I got to book travel and file expenses. And I think, I don't think that's easy on just an iPad. Like 
they would like it to be, and it's sort of all there, but there's all sorts of other stuff going on. You, you can't just live in the Concur app and do it all there. You got to go search on Kayak for things, look up reviews and TripAdvisor and all this stuff. So, all right. So you're, know, we'll you're, you're breaking my, uh, you're, you're, you're uh, popping my bubble here a little bit. So I'll just, it's just a good place to watch movies. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. All right. Got it. Well, at least I got the, I, I didn't get the latest one. I got the older version. So I don't feel as bad about that. Yeah. That was my worry. So yeah. I think if I was, if I think if I was in a workplace, just going from meeting to meeting, an iPad would be perfect. Right. All like, right. Well, I let have me my know. Desk. Full report on the, uh, the MacBook Air in, yeah. in, in, in a, wild, a couple weeks. Week. All right. Well, All as right. always, this has been Software Defined Talk. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 165, where we actually have show notes, unlike some podcasts like The Weeds, that doesn't seem to make it very easy to find out where their show notes, if they exist, are. They're only in iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, not on the World Wide Web. Or their Facebook group, apparently as they like to joke about. And if you want to get all the uh, the back episodes and everything, you just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. You should join the Slack channel there. And we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.
Wake up, fresh, crease, jeans, get to the fucking money. Roll up, smoke, pull up, drink, right back to the money. Pull up, stun, turn up, leave, more motherfucking money. Go hard, go home, wake up, repeat, order of operations. Order of operations. Order of operations. 